Welcome to PX21. My name is Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Today we're talking with a Victorian planning icon. He's an economist, a town and regional planner and has more than 40 years of consulting experience. He's a Life Fellow of the Planning Institute of Australia and a Fellow of VPLA. He's also helped revitalise Clarksdale in Mississippi and has worked across a number of cities across the world. We are of course talking about John Henschel from Essential Economics. Now before we get into it, Quick reminder to our listeners to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for further bios and photos of each of our podcast guests. We would also like to thank our wonderful sponsor, Maddox Lawyers. Now, if you also have any feedback, please email us on planningexchange at gmail.com. Welcome, John. Thank you, Jess. John, um, you originally graduated as an economist, then moved into planning. Can you just give us a little bit of a background on that, that changeover? Certainly. I studied economics in the mid to late 60s and uh, worked for several years then in market research and economic research. But in my last weeks at uh, university, I was cramming up for the exams and I read some old exam papers from other faculties that just happened to be in the, in the library. And I saw this course called uh, Town Planning. And they had these intriguing questions on how do you design a city for 10,000 people and this sort of thing. So several years later, I uh, had the chance to go back to Melbourne Uni and do their postgrad course, and uh, that got me on the into the planning trail at that time. And what does an urban economist do? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Let's see. Well, we look at um, putting facts and figures, if you like, around a lot of the planning discussions and arguments. Like we'll provide the population forecasts for particular areas. Uh, the socioeconomic profile of the communities that we're looking at. We look at retail economics, activity centre planning and development, uh, tourism, industrial land, business parks, so that whole area that, that uh, you guys would be familiar with in your planning roles. And we, we put the economic facts and figures around that. John, um, what do you know now that you didn't know five years ago? In a professional sense. Yes, <laughs> that's a very that's an intriguing question. I haven't looked right. back on the past five years. What about ten years ago? <laughs> <laughs> ten years ago, that's a really interesting and difficult question to answer. I think for me, at my age, life has just continued on over that period of time. I don't. I guess we've all become a bit more used to the technology and so forth. I'm struggling in that one. <laughs> How are the um, mid-70s compared to professional life, life now? Has it changed considerably in terms of energy, you know, within the office or technology or has it changed? It's changed remarkably really when we look back on it because uh, when I first started in my economic and market research, I had a, I had a slide rule to do my calculations. And I remember when the first handheld calculators came out and they really revolutionised things. And I was concerned then that a lot of us would lose our ability to do mental arithmetic. And here we are many, many years later and we've got computers and such. So, uh, can, you, can you speak, John, to the power of predictions um, from the 70s to now? 
Why do you suspect many prediction? What What do you suspect many predictions are not factoring in? Probably, what a lot of us aren't factoring in sufficiently is that technological change that's occurring, and will continue to occur at a at an accelerated rate in the coming years, and uh, that's probably the one area that I can see where there's a lot of change going on. We have to be able to foresee that. I think that's why it's always important to have some options or scenarios when we're doing our forecasting of economic activity. Your actual work, though, in um, urban economy, I can't imagine that would have changed considerably over time um, based on technology because a lot of your work is, I guess, uh, it's, it's hands, hands-on, it's, it's in the field. It's that's true. Yeah. For example, if we're involved in activity centre planning, we need to go out and actually floor space yeah. activity centres and that, that task hasn't really changed over many years, mm. although we now use technology to assist us in the recording of uh, retail floor space and the types of activities. But by and large, the, the uh, methodologies that we use are all pretty tried and true over a number of years. Mm. John, just casting uh, our listeners' mind back to our very first podcast with Chris Avery 20, 20 interviews ago, um, he talked about the changes in retailing, particularly with the internet and the delivery of goods. And so there's a, it's not a linear progression, is it? There is, there is disruption to a number of industry models going on. That's certainly the case because when I started out in, uh, in economics and planning, of course we didn't have the internet. And if you wanted something, you'd go down to the shops and get it. And uh, typically that wasn't on a weekend either. There was no weekend shopping. So there have been a number of changes over the years and the internet is, of course, a fundamental one. It accounts for probably 6 or 7% of all retail sales and the forecasts are, forecasts are that that will probably reach around a maximum of 12 or 15% in the next decade or so. So um, there are still changes ongoing there. Mm. You work across a range of projects. Are there any type of industries you will not work in and why not? Oh, let's see. Uh, there's probably just one industry that I would feel most uncomfortable and that would be representing the interests of gaming machines. I'm not, I'm not a, a gambler in that sense at all and uh, I just find that that's one sector that I would be most uncomfortable working in. I have acted for objectors to gaming machines and that does give me some satisfaction in a, in a professional sense. But of course, uh, one's personal likes and dislikes can't influence one's professional decisions either. So if, if I'm uh, acting for a client against poker machines, I still have to, be, uh, have to give my professional uh, credibility to the tribunal or the gaming commission or whoever the, the, the body might be. Do you think there's, uh, ethics should play a bigger role in the profession? Uh, and I'm talking about issues of equality. Um, a number of planners work on policies that may be detrimental to choice and opportunities. Do you think that ethical issues should come into play a lot more? I understand the question, but I suppose my question back to you would be whether those ethics are yours or mine. That would be, to me, the fundamental question. And as I said earlier, um, 
if one is taking an ethical stance on something, at the end of the day, if we imagine we're in VCAT, the professional has to give his or her viewpoints uh, to assist the tribunal in making the right decision. So uh, in that sense, ethics is very important, but we need to be able to support that and substantiate our viewpoint on those particular aspects. Mm. Always, I'd like to give a special shout-out to our wonderful sponsor, Maddox, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. When you need a compelling advocate for VCAT, planning panels, advisory committees and higher courts on appeals, Maddox has got you covered. Please refer to their website at www.maddox.com.au for further details. You've worked across a number of Asian countries since the early 80s and it's normally assumed that the West can teach the East. However, what can the East teach the West in terms of city development and management? Yes, well, that's never been put to me before, but... (laughs) What I would say straight off the top is that when working in developing countries where living conditions are really, I mean, it's, it's abject poverty in places like Bangladesh and Pakistan and, and uh, Indonesia in the day. This is going back 30-some years. But I always found that the people were happy in what they did in their day-to-day living. And they were living, as I say, in abject poverty. They wouldn't have... Uh, proper drainage, they wouldn't have water supply, fresh water, they wouldn't have that. Because they didn't know any different either, did they? No, and they were able to circumvent some of those issues by adjusting their lifestyle and their household and workplace situations so that for me it was, I could see them in poverty, but they probably didn't see themselves in the same picture. Mm-hmm. John, just taking up that point about Asian cities, I'm thinking about the tr- the transport, and you just talked about how people adapt to their circumstances. In, in terms of mobility, I mean, when I go to Asian cities, I see lots of scooters, I see lots of informal van-like. Now, can we sort of use that sort of more laissez-faire approach to some of our issues, do you think? Possibly. I'm thinking here of Jakarta, where I've worked for a number of years, and even going back a decade or two, people would provide their own personal car to take you from A to B in the heavy traffic. And I guess today that's really the Uber model, if you like. They didn't have too many taxis. They were notorious in any event. But you could get a lift in somebody's car, and that certainly assisted when uh, when they had the two persons per car situation to travel on their highways in the, in the city. And... Uh, if you could pick someone up on the roadside, that gave you two people in the car so you could get into the fast lane. Mm. So uh, they, they were able to, to get around issues like that and develop for us perhaps the new models like Uber. And do you think the cities are becoming more inequitable? They probably are simply because the, the, that component of the community that has or the society that has the wealth has increasing power and that's a worldwide um, phenomenon. So in that sense, cities are becoming probably more inequitable, and that's also with the very substantial population growth that's still occurring. Like Since I first went to Jakarta, the city has doubled in size, oh, wow. and uh, 
people are still living in poverty and without without proper transport and such. And, and going to our cities, John, there's a question of that our cities are getting more inequitable. There's some economists have looked at this whole equality issue and said that because the standard of goods is so much better than it was, so you might be a multi-millionaire and drive around in a Bentley, but I can get into a Toyota Corolla and it has the same features pretty much as that Bentley. And the products that people have are so much better. So in terms of equality, there is a quality of material. Any comments? I can't believe you just compared a, a Corolla to a Bentley. But <laughs> <laughs> right. I'll but remind but you, you of that later. But you, mean, you, you can be the richest person and buy the most expensive DVD player, but you can buy one for 40 bucks and it'll still work pretty much just as well. I can see that in, in terms of goods, merchandise and so on, but I don't necessarily see that in the way we live in our cities today because uh, the inequality is there in the sense that some people have to live on the outskirts of town, on the fringe, because that's the only affordable place they can live, yet their jobs are back in town somewhere. Doesn't planning have a big responsibility for, in, in well, first of all, creating that situation and also addressing that situation? It certainly does have to address the situation, but I don't know that too many of us are intrinsically involved in addressing those inequalities. I'm thinking here of, of homelessness, and Vipla had a session on that recently, on homelessness, and uh, they put out the challenge there for all of us to work more closely on that very topic. So there are those areas, individual areas, where we as planners and economists and other professionals really do need to take time off to look at those inequalities that we otherwise don't have to deal with. And what about smaller regional areas? Um, I know you worked on the small town study back in the late 80s and um, looking at how those towns struggle or prosper. Um, how are the new economies helping certain places? Probably one of the big differences that, that we note is that uh, the smaller towns, many of them have disappeared even since that study was undertaken back in the late 80s. And just, just to interrupt quickly, so the small towns was looking at populations under 10,000? Under, th under 3,000. Under 3,000. Yes. And we, we adopted a, a, a typology of towns and we looked at six towns in depth across Victoria. But what's probably saved a lot of them in the last two decades is that um, those that are closer to Melbourne or the regional centres become a place of uh, commuters to live and they have the lifestyle aspect so they can enjoy that and then travel into Melbourne or Bendigo or Ballarat or Geelong or wherever to work. Another factor that's really helped many small towns is tourism and they've been building on their particular assets and uh, that's really helped. So these small towns now attract tens of thousands of people over weekends or for festivals or for fine dining and, and so on. And that's really helped to keep the populations there. It's kept the jobs going. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the big outcomes over that, all that period of time. The towns that you spoke about um, disappearing since that study, <clears throat> do you think um, the role of you know, new freeways and new transport nodes has, uh, has contributed to those towns disappearing? To some extent. We've, for example, undertaken a number of projects over the years towns that are being bypassed by mm. freeways and 
by and large, the bypasses have been good for towns in the sense that it keeps that through traffic out of their main streets. Mm. Um, they can still stop off at a service centre or they can still drive into the small town if they want to. I would frequently drive up to the northeastern Victoria and I always stopped in Uroa at the... The bakery there. The, ba- the bakery and there's a, <laughs> several shops there that I really enjoyed visiting as I'd drive up to, to Wangratta several times a year. So those towns are still still keeping their customer base there. Yeah. John, you worked uh, on making the early case for music festivals. I think you mentioned Falls. That's down at Lawn. Why do new ideas almost always have to prove themselves? Um, are we open to uh, experimentation, um, that failures are not such a bad thing? We probably haven't adapted ourselves to failures not being necessarily a bad thing, meaning that we do have to test things because they have to be commercially viable in most cases, unless you find somebody, a benefactor, who's willing to, to fund something well into the future, even if it's making a loss, whether it's a festival or a particular type of retail outlet or whatever it might be. So, yes, we do have to test, in inverted commas, those new ideas, whether it be a a festival or a particular type of retail, as I say. And and if we fail, and I think eight out of ten ideas probably don't get off the drawing boards, so uh, we should learn from those experiences as well. And that goes to the idea of the local champions, doesn't it? Something that you've promoted at Clarksdale. Certainly. Well, I identified it, along with others, that uh, those champions themselves, they really emerged from the community and uh, provided those opportunities for for new business types and investments and jobs and so forth. So I certainly was able to recognise that in Clarksdale, but I have to say it's the people themselves that, did all the hard work and the, the investment. <clears throat> Just touching on Clarksdale, you've always been interested in the blues. Can you talk of the epiphany that occurred while you are in Mississippi that led to the work that you have done there? <laughs> yes, that's quite a few years back now. I was travelling from New Orleans. I'd been at a painting association conference and I was driving in my rental car up to Memphis to get a plane home to Melbourne. Was it a Corolla? <laughs> Bentley. Bentley. It was probably a Buick, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and my Lonely Planet guidebook said if you enjoy blues music, you should take a drive off Highway 49 into Clarksdale, Mississippi. And that's really where I got my interest on the ground in blues music and the Delta, because Clarksdale is the, it's really the capital of the, the Mississippi Delta, and that's where so many of the blues musicians came from, like Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and Ike Turner and Sam Cooke, they all came from there. Mm. John, just going back to some uh, economic assessments, what's the most common failure you find in economic studies that you read? Possibly the area that, that I come across is when one is peer-reviewing peer uh, reports and so forth, and find that the case for a particular type of development might be exaggerated, because that does happen. And uh, is that a f- trying to please the client? Is it trying to over egg it for that? Is it trying to sell it rather than objectively assess it? Well, at the end of the day, the, 
the client will be looking to get their planning permit through or to have a win at VCAT or whatever it might be. And so the, pe the people responsible for doing the expert evidence will certainly do a good job of it, but sometimes you do find that the catchment for a, an activity centre is, is exaggerated or perhaps uh, population growth rates are exaggerated or factors like that. But it doesn't happen too often. Um, I guess most of the time the, the economists that, that we come across are very, uh, are very professional in their work. Uh, you take me back to the question there as to whether we... Uh, Over-egg it or what's the most mm. common failure? Probably making forecasts that aren't realistic. That's probably the one area. Uh, can we talk briefly about the disruptive economy and the collaborative economy that new technologies are freeing up resources? What sort of spatial implications do you think this wave energy is going to have? Well, that's a, that is a difficult area in which to predict outcomes. But uh, when we just have to read in today's newspaper how people are increasingly looking to spend extra rent to live in the inner city because that means they don't have to own a, a motor vehicle. Uh, they can rely on public transport or taxis or Uber. Of course, Uber is one of those new disruptive technologies, as you call it. It wasn't foreseen uh, a couple of years back. And now it's, it plays a big role in, for many of us in getting around town. So um, it's a very difficult area to forecast, the disruptive technologies and such. People tell us that over the next 10 or 15 years, half the jobs that we have presently won't be with us. There again, others talk to the huge range and variety of jobs that will come forth over that same period of time. Uh, there's, again, in today's media, there's a story about uh, introducing electric buses and they will create a million jobs. And uh, those sorts of opportunities we're still unravelling and discovering. Mm. Economics can sometimes have a reputation as a fairly dry subject. Is this fair? And what does this tell us about city dyma dynamics? Should it have a greater role? Economics can be pretty dry. Uh, it's always hard to explain to people what an economist does. They and guess, don't they? Pardon me, they... <laughs> They're fortune tellers. <laughs> they are in some <laughs> ways. I'm reminded of the story of a, a young boy at school. Uh, a teacher was asking them, the kids in the classroom, what their parents did. And one would say, oh, my dad's a, a lawyer or my mum's a doctor or a bus driver or whatever it might be. And this little kid said his dad was a pianist in a brothel. <laughs> and that really shocked the teacher. So she rang up the father just to inquire what sort of lifestyle he was living to, <laughs> to demonstrate to his young kid. And the father replied, look, he said, uh, I'm an economist and that's really hard to describe. So I just say I'm a pianist in a brothel. <laughs> John, can we talk about the influence that new wave economic thinking like behavioural economics might play in influencing urban design and city planning? That's an in-depth question, I'm, right, I'm but, sure. Uh, but, but maybe you can explain to our listeners behavioural economics. Well, that would, in my view, my definition, that would be just we do the things we do because of our behavioural patterns in the past and what we want to do into the future. 
changing lifestyles and that sort of thing. It, it does affect the way we, we go shopping, the way we spend our leisure time. And, that, and those areas are starting to, to blend as well because 15 years ago we didn't have the range of uh, hospitality in our main streets that, and shopping centres that we now have. So hospitality and cafes and restaurants are now a big part of the retail spend and the visit to your local centre. That wasn't there 15 or 20 years back. But behavioural economics is really about uh, studying people and seeing that a lot of the times they don't act rationally and that they have likes and dislikes that maybe uh, it gets away from the textbook. It certainly does. And, of course, that's, economics is based on, on a certain rationale and that's where we really need to be clear about what we're forecasting or looking at. We, we assume that people make rational decisions, that they're logical. Um, we assume that everybody has access to the same information so we can make an informed decision. And uh, we make these sorts of assumptions. They're really inappropriate in today's fast-changing lifestyles and technologies and so forth. So... Um, now, we've jumped around a little bit in terms of um, your experience in Mississippi. Um, when you were there, uh, you had an epiphany that we spoke about before. This started a, a quite a long-term relationship with the town. Can you speak to that and the work that you have undertaken there? Yes. Well, I've been there now 18 times to Mississippi, to, to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and uh, I joke that I could have bought a beach house by now <laughs> with all that travel and cost. But when I was there, I went back in 08 to write a story, a personal story, about blues music and the revitalisation of this town and, and so on. And they discovered then that they, if they wanted a Main Street program or whatever, they had to have a plan, but they didn't have a plan. So I was there for three months, so I put my hand up and said I'd do that. And I changed direction. I, instead of doing my Blues Odyssey, I wrote an action plan for them. It was pro bono. And, uh, and how long were you there for? Three months. Time, three months. And at the end of that three months, they set up the Clarksdale Revitalisation Incorporated and they put on a coordinator or manager for that and a board and they adopted the plan and they've been implementing that plan and their own initiatives over the past number of years. And how has it changed now, the town? Are you, it's are you starting to see some of the changes occurring? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When I first went there in 01, there was one diner in the main street and now there's uh, five or six cafes and restaurants. Hmm. There are several art galleries. There's the main museum plus a private museum, rock and roll blues mm -hmm. museum. And uh, That must be quite rewarding seeing that all come to fruition? It's great, really. Mm. It is. And there's more accommodation in the town, in the downtown area. Uh, the Hooker Hotel and Delta Digs and the lofts at the Five and Dine. These are all new businesses that mm. local people and a number of newcomers to the town. And these are like the creative people that we hear about. Uh, we all know Richard Florida and Charles Landry. Well, these people in Clarksdale are doing it themselves and it's just remarkable. Mm. John, it seems extraordinary. Clarksdale has got such a pivotal role in music history with so many great artists coming out of there. Um, it's remarkable that the town was let go as far as it, as far as it fell. 
That's certainly the case, and that's because of the changing economic structure there. It was, uh, they used to joke that Clarksdale was the, the buckle in the cotton belt because the delta was where so much cotton was produced. And then uh, with mechanisation, which was introduced in the Clarksdale area in 1944, the first uh, mechanised uh, equipment, that meant that there was mass loss of employment and mainly, of course, in the African-American community, so people had to migrate to the cities in the north for employment. And uh, over time, the manufacturing sector has declined in importance, but then they've now discovered cultural tourism, and this plays a big role uh, through blues music and uh, Tennessee Williams, who grew up there as a boy, that sort of thing, and uh, southern culture and southern food. The south will rise again, John. South will. It's certainly rising right now. <laughs> now, John, you were also in a coma for a week. And this was back in early 2000, was it? 2006. Yeah. That experience must have shaped you or changed your outlook. Do you agree? Well, it did. Of course, I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I just thought I had a long sleep for a week. <laughs> but uh, it was just through a, a hospital mishap and I got septicemia. And I had a few months off work. And that's really what took me back to, to Clarksdale to write that story, mm. that blues odyssey. And uh, as I say, I've been back there altogether 18 times. And uh, so it's really made a big change to mm. me. I want to go to Clarksdale yeah, now. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, John, there's talk about livability. How about lovability? How do we make cities more conducive to romance from an economic point of view? Oh, very good. From an economist. <laughs> Well, there are romantic cities like, uh, I guess, Paris. And Overrated. And uh, Rome and so forth. Overrated. <laughs> Clarksdale. Clarksdale's very romantic. <laughs> but um, I don't know, maybe just having a local coffee shop might, might induce a lot more people to sit down and have a chat and meet the person at the other table and make their lives uh, that much more happier and... and uh, Conducive to romance. Maybe that's the way. Cafe-led romance. It's interaction, isn't it? It is. Creating opportunities for interaction. In, in, a, in a world where we're all so obsessed with technology and we sit inside and communicate on our phones rather than getting up and talking to each other. I think it's, it's about interaction. You can have those um, nice spots in the street, the cafes, the restaurants, nice parks. It certainly is. And... Uh, I'm remembering back to my days in Brunswick Street. There was one takeaway food shop and there was the Black Cat, of course, the coffee shop. And in those days you just couldn't get lunch because uh, the, cafe, the sandwich bar would close because the factories would close over Christmas. Mm. Now in Brunswick Street there's probably 125 or more cafes, restaurants and venues and so forth. So that's, um, I guess, Brunswick Street has generated a lot of romance really mm. when I look back. Definitely. And how do you refresh and relax? What do you do um, when you go to the well? What do you seek? I check how deep it is and whether I can jump in, I guess. <laughs> no, seriously, I like to listen. I like to listen to uh, the music. I like to read when I can. I don't get to do enough uh, casual reading. Can I ask how many records would you have? About 2,000. <laughs> Another beach house 
has been lost <laughs> in all that expenditure. But um, yes, I, I, if I go to the well, it's probably for some reflection. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Well, listeners, we've had the pleasure of the company of John Henschel, an optimistic and romantic economist. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. My pleasure. 